Thank you, choir, band, Jim, Lauren, Nate. That was he's such a spry man to get from the organ to the keyboard. You see that? It was, if you blinked, you missed it. Man, praise God, church arise. That's powerful stuff straight from scripture. They will know us by our love. I'm so grateful to get to share the Lord's Supper with our church family today, as our church is called to rise up and to reflect the love, the amazing love, how can it be, of Jesus Christ back to a world that desperately needs it. And as we're walking through this part of the Gospel of John, we've been in John, there's a lot of visitors here today, all you college kids that are back, it's wonderful to have you back. My in-laws are in town. Uh, Jude's birthday party was last night, and so they drove from East Tennessee over here, and they made the mistake of going to Target yesterday. And is, if you know anything about moving weekend, apparently Belmont, Lipscomb, and Vandy all decided to do it at the same time. So there were lots of parents scrounging for dorm materials and stuff at Target, and my in-laws braved it. Thank you for going so I didn't have to. I appreciate that, Sam. Uh, whew, I don't do well with that stuff. But it's so fun to be in the Gospel of John together. We're walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, throughout the whole book. And we've now reached part two of John. The first part of John is where Jesus is teaching, he's ministering, he's healing the sick and the lame and the blind, and he's teaching about the new kingdom and the new creation and the new covenant. And here in, in John chapter 13, we're at the table. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are what's known as the farewell discourse. And it takes place with Jesus and his disciples around the table as they celebrate Passover together. And we see this beautiful example at the beginning of the farewell discourse where Jesus takes his cloak and sets it aside just as he set his divinity aside and he puts up a towel around his waist and he goes to each disciple as they recline at the table and he washes their feet as an example of his love for them that we are commanded to reflect out into the world. And that sets the tone for the whole discourse. And where we are tonight, we're, we're gonna see this new commandment that Jesus gives and the new covenant that we're gonna celebrate at the Lord's Supper today. So we've been given the example to serve and to follow Jesus' example to serve one another, and this morning we're gonna see how Jesus commands us to love one another as well. This scene at the Last Supper is an incredibly tense scene. It's a dramatic scene. There's a sense of urgency to it because Jesus in a matter of hours is going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. The stakes are high. Emotions are raw. And Jesus himself, although he knows what's going to happen in his sovereign pre-omniscient knowledge, he's not exempt from feeling conflicted over what's about to happen. And I think it's great to know that no matter what we go through, no matter what kind of circumstances you may be in in your life right now or in the past or in the future, 
No matter what kind of difficult situation you may find yourself in, confused, worried, conflicted, that we have a Savior who has been through those exact same situations. Isn't it great to know that we have a Savior who was troubled in his spirit just as you and I are often troubled in our spirits? Verse 21 here at the beginning of the passage, we're going to read it in just a minute but talks about how Jesus is conflicted during this time. So with that in mind, will you please stand as we read God's word together? John 13, if you're able to stand one more time. John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. Hear now the word of the Lord around the table of the Last Supper. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. When you think about Jesus, the sovereign son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate, God who comes to earth to rescue us. He's the one who walked on water and calmed the storm. But now that he's troubled in his spirit, the the Greek word for troubled is the same word that's used to describe a storm. Jesus, who has control over the wind and the waves, now has wind and waves inside of himself as one of his closest friends, a man who has followed him for three years. 
a man who has shared countless meals with him, a man who has prayed alongside of him. When you pray with somebody, it's an intimate experience. It, It bonds people. A man who's ministered at his side, a man who was the treasurer for the group of disciples, a man who had known Jesus intimately and yet was about to hand him over to his enemies to be arrested, tried, and killed all for 30 pieces of silver. It's deeply troubling to Jesus, which I find comforting. Jesus is not impervious to these troubling situations. Hebrews 4, 15 One of my favorite verses says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I have a lot of weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ knows our weaknesses well because he too experienced them in his own flesh. And Jesus, even though he's conflicted, You know, therapists would tell us this, and they're right. He doesn't just keep it bottled in to himself. He talks about it with his friends. It says here that he tells them what's troubling him. It says that he divulges that one of them is about to betray him. And the disciples can't understand how this could possibly be, but by this point in their journey, thankfully, they've learned it's never a wise thing to doubt Jesus. So they start chattering, they start whispering, they start pointing fingers and and spreading rumors. Who do you think it is? It's probably that guy. He's kind of a jerk. I don't know. Maybe this other guy. They're trying to figure out who it could be. And then Peter. I love Peter so much. Peter reminds me a lot of myself. Peter tends to overpromise and (laughs) underdeliver. I get excited about things, then I forget about them. (laughs) get really fired up about things, then they fall away by the wayside. Peter, who says, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus says, I mean, it sounds like sarcasm, doesn't it? Will you lay down your life for me? Will you, Peter? Before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. It's the kind of guy Peter was. And Peter here, he gets John to ask Jesus the question that everybody wants to know. Who is it? It reminds me of, you know, I can't tell you how many times that May has come to us, our our middle child who's seven, with a request, "Uh, Mom, Dad, can we have some ice cream? And we know that it was Jude who put her up to it, right? Jude, her older brother, was the one, you know, we're like, Jude, come on. If you want ice cream, just come ask us yourself. Don't put your sister up to it. Peter's kind of like that. Peter has... Ask John, John, ask him, you ask him, you do it. I love Peter. Reminds me of our weaknesses. And he, Jesus tells John who it is. He discreetly shows him with this symbol of dipping the morsel, which, by the way, was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of love and brotherly affection to dip a morsel and hand it to someone. In John 13, 1, we see that Jesus loved his disciples to the end, even the one who was about to betray him. And the disciples don't pick up on it. They're kind of clueless. And they assume that Judas is being sent away to go buy some more food or 
that he was going out to give away some food to the poor, which apparently was a custom with Jesus and his disciples, which made me think, when was the last time that my family had a big meal and we sent someone out to take the leftovers to the hungry? Apparently that was a custom of Jesus. When was the last time at Thanksgiving you thought about how you could bless the, the needy after Thanksgiving supper? Just interesting thought. But Judas is not giving to the poor, neither is he going to buy more food for the feast of Passover. Judas, from this point on, is literally possessed by Satan. Verse 30 is one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It was night is a phrase that's, that's full of meaning. I didn't catch it the first time I read it, but all the commentaries I read mean all the commentaries I read said that this means that it was midnight in the soul of Judas, that there was a night that had befallen Judas from which he would never recover, that Judas would literally enter a night that would never become morning. The entire Gospel of John speaks about Jesus as the light of the world, the life of the world. He's the light and the life. Jesus comes to earth to push back against the darkness of this world. That he stood up at the, the Feast of Tabernacles, at the, the temple mount full of lamps and lanterns and said, I am the light of the world. But Judas has now gone away from the light for the last time. He's now separated from Jesus, and the sad thing is, he's not only separated from Jesus at the Last Supper, He's separated from Jesus for the rest of his life and for all of eternity. He's rejected the light. He's rejected the life. He's rejected the love of Jesus Christ and faces an eternity without him. And did you notice how the, the whole tone of this passage in verse 31 and following really changes? One commentary I read said that the, Jesus is palpably relieved once Judas departs. Jesus is now intensely focused on the remaining 11 disciples who will soon become the front runners for this whole new movement that Jesus is launching, this new covenant community that he's creating begins with these 11 guys. So what Jesus says to him now will, will have profound implications for how they carry the movement forward in its beginning stages. He speaks to them in, in verse 31 about how the time's finally come where he's going to be lifted up and glorified through the cross of Jesus. The Father's going to bring glory to himself through the power of the cross. All of history is about to be forever changed through the cross of Christ. It will split time into B.C. and A.D. And with this, Jesus now turns to one of the most profound teachings that he has for us, for his followers. It's a new commandment. Verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you follow me, that you belong to me, if you have love for one another. This is the, the mandatum novum in Latin, right? It's the, the phrase from which we get Maundy Thursday. We celebrate this text and this commandment every year during Holy Week as we approach the events of Easter and, and Good Friday. The new commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples to love one another. You know, the Bible talks a lot about new things, doesn't it? Isaiah 43, 19, one of my favorite verses. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? God says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Many of you have memorized this short verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Colossians 3, see that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So here in the upper room, Jesus is doing a new thing with this new commandment. He's creating a new community based on a new covenant. You Bible scholars out there may be saying, wait a minute, the commandment to love one another, that's, that's as old as the Mosaic law. We know that Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourselves. Jesus was referencing that verse when he said that was the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. This isn't anything new at all. But Jesus changes it. The object of that command changes. Love your neighbor is now changed to what? Love one another. And the measure of that commandment has also changed. He doesn't say love one another as yourselves. He says love one another what? How? Just as I have loved you. Wow. How has Jesus loved us? What is the measure of? of Christ's love that we should aspire to love one another with. Jesus has loved us by taking all of our sin, all of our shame, all the punishment, all the, the grief, the penalty that our broken lives have earned. And by giving us instead his beautiful righteousness, beauty for ashes, that his perfect life earned. And can it be, Charles Wesley wrote many years ago, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. 
Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? This kind of love is revolutionary. The love of Christ changes things in dramatic ways. It breaks down walls. It changes structures from the inside out. We know our world is broken, right? We know there's something wrong with the world before Aerosmith said that. We knew that was true. Sin has made a mess of things. Sin has wrecked families. It's wrecked government. It's wrecked churches. Sin has wrecked traffic. (laughs) I hate traffic. My wife likes it. She she enjoys it. I don't understand it. Sin has made a mess of technology. We have to only look at the news to see how sin has corrupted and infected things. Mass shootings, rampant prejudice, racism, mental illness. And despite all these advances in technology, we know that Our young people are the loneliest and most disconnected generation ever in America. Not much has changed, though, really, since Jesus' day. In Jesus' time, human slavery was still epidemic and normal. Greeks regarded Jewish people as barbarians. And Jews were known to the rest of the world as ascetic people who hated the world. Entrenched patriarchy kept women as second-class humans, as subhuman on some level. Into this fractured world, Jesus gives us the commandment to love one another as he has loved us, and it changes everything. This new commandment changes this new community. Listen to what one of our Baptist forerunners, Alexander McLaren, he was a famous Baptist pastor, Scottish guy. He describes what happens because of the mandatum novum, the new commandment. He says, barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break all other bonds and to yield to the uniting forces that streamed out from his cross. There never had been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies and complicity in unnameable vices. It was only that the disciples were obeying the new commandment and a new thing had come into the world. A community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or linguistic affinities or the iron fetters of the conqueror. The new commandment made a new thing and the world wondered. Isn't that great? That's what this table is all about here before you today. This morning we come together as one body, as one family of faith, 
one new community only because of the amazing love of Christ and our willingness to reciprocate that love to one another. You know, our world really is all too similar to Jesus' world in the first century. People today are longing for genuine community just as they were back then. This new covenant community that Jesus created exploded onto the scene and it spread quickly into every corner of the earth. How? How is that possible? Jesus didn't come with a sword. He wasn't a military leader, a political mind. What? How could they do that? It's because Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to indwell the new believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the world saw it. They couldn't help but notice the, the strange nature of this new community, how they actually loved one another across boundaries. They loved one another sacrificially, generously, and consistently. Rock-solid barriers that were formerly in place, barriers of race, barriers of gender, barriers of socioeconomic class, all came tumbling down as Christ's followers became one family through the radical, amazing love found in the gospel of Christ Jesus. The cup that we partake of today is the cup of the new covenant community. I was joking around with Jared, Jared Hagler and Amy fill our our cups, and they were in the refrigerator. The, the juice was in the refrigerator, so the, the, the cups had frost on them, uh, condensation from coming out of the refrigerator. And I said, oh, I like my, my juice cold. Thank you, Jared. He said, it's not juice, it's the blood of Christ, man. It's the blood of Christ. And he's right. We don't believe in transubstantiation here, but this is more than simple bread and juice. This is something more profound than simply a snack. There's a means of grace in the sacraments. That's a little Catholic, but I believe it's true. That as we gather together in God's holy place with God's holy people, that God's grace is present with us in a powerful way. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's more than just juice. Yes, we are born into this fallen world. Yes, we have our issues. We have our hurts, our habits, and hang-ups, as Celebrate Recovery says here. Our flesh is prone to sin. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But for those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into his family... We're a part of a whole new thing. We have the opportunity to live as a whole new kind of humanity. Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, describe our new reality. Listen to this. But you have come to Mount Zion. It doesn't say you will come. It says you have come. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, this is now, 
to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The question for us today is will we live like this? Will this be the reality that defines our day-to-day existence? I know most of you here today don't feel like you're at a festal gathering with the angels right now. You may be going through a hard season. But the reason the writer of Hebrews puts this in the present tense is that we live in this strange in-between time called the now, but not yet. We live in the now, but not yet. Everything has changed. We have come to the new Jerusalem. We've become the new humanity. We've become the new community of heaven. Already that's happened, but we still have cancer. We still have divorce. We still have poverty. We still have injustice. But the good news is that one day Jesus is returning. And that as often as we partake of this meal together, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again to finish making all things new. Do you feel more connected in this room to the people around you than to you do your own family? Maybe not. Are the ties of love between Christians in your life between you and other believers, are those bonds of love stronger than blood? Are they deeper than blood? Do we love each other as Jesus has loved us? If we can answer yes to those questions, we will change the world just as the new covenant community changed the world in the first century. Just like the early church flourished in the midst of harsh persecution and and terrible times, so can the church today show the world what Jesus actually is like. We have a chance today to come to the table together and be unified with the forces that flow out from the cross of love and peace and unity. The invitation is there. Will you come? Let's pray. Lord God, as we enter into a time of communion, help us to not only commune with you, but to commune with one another, our brothers and sisters in one family of faith. God, I pray that the world would take notice of the way that Woodmont Baptist, Woodmont Christian, Calvary Methodist, Green Hills Community Church, how we love one another as family. Help us to be one just as you and the Father are one, God. May we also be unified in spirit, in love, in truth, in thought, in word, in deed. God, I pray that as we partake of these elements today, that you would remind us this is not just bread and this is not just juice. This is your body broken for us. This is your blood poured out for us. 
that transforms us into a whole new kind of humanity. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come. God, we know that you've commanded us to love each other and we have failed to do that. May we leave here today fully recommitting to loving one another in the way that you have loved us fully without hesitation. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.